said the dragon. You could always ride on my back. What are you looking at, obnoxious girls? But before he got to the wizard's house, he figured he'd try it out, see if it really worked. Held it up and said, sail, ship, sail. We love it's time for the apple seed, filled with stories for you and your family, all kinds of tales from all kinds of tellers. I'm Sam Payne, your host. What a pleasure it is for me to be with you every time that you bring these stories into your home and into your heart. Now, on today's episode of the show, when adventure calls, it's the duty of any protagonist worth their salt to answer it. Sometimes characters in stories are invited to go on an adventure. Other times, necessity calls, and they're forced into an adventure to solve a problem or help a friend. And in today's stories, our protagonists of all shapes and sizes are called to go on quests to solve problems and help each other out. We're going to hear from Ed Stivender with a story called Jack and the Magic Boat. You'll hear a story from Willie Claflin, kind of a fractured fairy tale called So What and Drop Dead, recorded live at the National Storytelling Festival. And to introduce us to the first story that we're going to hear, I'm pleased to be joined in the studio by one of our assistant producers, Kendra Hanna. Kendra, it's great to have you with me. Great to be here. We're going to hear a story from Simon Brooks, right? Tell us a little bit about this tale. Yeah, so this is the story of two sea dragons, and Mrs. Dragon, she falls ill, and in order to get better, she needs to eat a monkey's heart. But that's kind of a hard thing to get when you live in the ocean, so we have to send Mr. Dragon off to fetch one. <laughs> a quest story, right? Absolutely. Get Mrs. Dragon feeling better, and it's going to take a monkey's heart to do it. The story is an old tale told for you by the New Hampshire storyteller Simon Brooks, and we're happy to bring it to you here. The Dragon and the Monkey's Heart on the Appleseed. There are many types of dragon. There are the great dragons that... St. George fought with their huge wings and fiery breath and sharp claws. And, and there, are, there are the worms that scurry around on the ground with, with no wings whatsoever. There are also sea dragons that don't fly, that don't go on the land. And this is a story about two such dragons and a monkey. There were two dragons... Mr. and Mrs. Dragon, and they loved each other dearly. And Mr. Dragon would do absolutely anything for Mrs. Dragon, anything at all. And when he noticed that she had become sick and had stopped eating, he became anxious. What's wrong, my dear? he said one day. What's wrong? You don't seem your usual self. Well, I'm not my usual self, but there's nothing you can do about it. You wouldn't do anything for me anyway. But of course I would. I do everything I possibly can for you, my dear. What is it? What ails you? Well, there's nothing you can do. There's nothing at all you can do. But if you don't tell me, how do I know there's nothing I can do? Come on, tell me what's wrong. And so it went on. Mrs. Dragon saying that there was nothing that Mr. Dragon could do, and Mr. Dragon saying that he would do absolutely anything for the dearest, sweetest light of his life, the apple of his eye, the fire in his heart. And then she said, Well, you know, I bumped into the to the great white shark the other day, and and he told me that there was this there was this most scrumptious 
diddlyumptious thing that I could ever eat, and it, it was a monkey's heart. And ever since I've been thinking about this monkey's heart and, and how all scrumptious diddlyumptious it is, I, I haven't been able to think of anything else or, or eat anything else. But we can't get a monkey's heart, said Mr Dragon. We're sea dragons. I told you you wouldn't be able to do anything. You you can't do anything about this. But if I could, I, I, I would. I, I honestly swear I would. If you loved me, you'd get me a monkey's heart. But I'm a sea dragon and, and monkeys live on the land. How am I supposed to get a monkey? If you loved me, you'd find a way. If you loved me like you said you would, you would get me a, a monkey's heart and make me well. <laughs> all right, all right, all right. Settle down. No, no. I, I, I'll try my hardest to get to get a monkey's heart for you. I promise, I will. And so the dragon swam through the seas until he came to the shore. And there, when he came up to the beach, he saw huge trees that went far up into the sky and at the top of one of these trees there was a monkey <laughs> and the dragon looked up at the monkey swinging from branch to branch and the dragon called up um, excuse me mr monkey aren't you frightened of being up so high And as if to prove his point, the monkey wrapped his tail around a branch and swung upside down. The dragon's heart fluttered just a little bit. He didn't like the idea of him being up there. He couldn't understand why the monkey would like it so much. The monkey swung on its tail, swinging and swinging, and reached out and clunk, grabbed hold of a fruit and began to eat the fruit. So, so you say you're not very frightened of heights. Is that fruit... Juicy? Ooh. <laughs> Ooh, yes, 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 yes! And the monkey, as if to prove a point, spat down the pit, which hit the dragon on the head. Ooh, that, that, that wasn't very nice of you. Um, you know where I come from? The trees have much more juicier fruits on than the trees here. Yes, they are, you know. <laughs> Well, that's well enough for you to say, but 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 you're a sea dragon. You go across the sea. I'm a m -m 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 monkey. I can't go across the sea. <laughs> and these trees are just fine, thank you very much. <laughs> and as if to prove his point once more, he reached across and grabbed another fruit and. Ooh, that wasn't very nice. Well, said the dragon, you could always ride on my back. The, the trees have far, far more fruit on them than the trees here. Yes, why, why don't you come down and, and you can ride on my back and I shall swim. I shall swim and take you to those, those trees where the, the juicier fruits are. The dragon wasn't really going to take the monkey anywhere. The dragon wanted the monkey to come down from the tree so that he could take it back to his wife so his wife could have a monkey's heart to eat. But of course, the wee monkey up, 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 up in the tree didn't know that. 
and the monkey decided that you 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 take me across the sea to 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 to, to get some more to get some more juicier fruits. Well, yes, if you if you would like to," said the dragon. I'll be right there. And the monkey scrambled down the tree, ran across the the small beach, and leapt onto the dragon's back. And the dragon said, "Hold on tight." Okay. The monkey was all excited about getting these new juicy fruits. The, the the dragon was excited that he was capturing a monkey to take back to his wife. And so he made his way across the top of the ocean. And then he began to dive down beneath the water. Said the monkey. What 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 are you doing? Monkeys can't swim. Monkeys can't go underwater. Oh, oh, oh. Um, to be honest, I, I tricked you. You see, my wife, she's very sick, and she's not eating anything. And the only thing that will cure her is a m- monkey's heart. So I'm taking you back to feed my wife your heart. <laughs> no, 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 no! The monkey began to think very fast. No, 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 no.、Uh, monkeys, didn't you know that monkeys don't keep their hearts in their chest? No, but I, I didn't know that," said the dragon. Oh, no, 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 no.、Uh, we, we, we keep our our hearts in boxes. Oh yes, and then we keep the boxes high up in our trees. <laughs> yes, that's that's where we keep our hearts," said the monkey. I, I'm more than happy to 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 go back home and and climb up my tree and get my box with a heart in it and and give it to you if it would save your wife's life. Oh, you would do that for me," said the dragon. Oh, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> One good deed and all that. Yes, yes, of course. Well, that's awfully kind of you. And so the dragon turned around in the water and <laughs> made his way back. Made his way back to the island, made his way back to the beach, and as soon as he got to the beach, the monkey leapt off the dragon, scrambled across the beach, climbed up the tree. Oh, be 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 <laughs> be right back," said the monkey, and off he went up into the canopy, into the leaves of the trees. Now, the dragon waited and waited. And waited for the monkey to return, <laughs> but as far as I know, the dragon could still be waiting there to this day. And the monkey, <laughs> he could still be running through the branches of the trees. Dragon and the Monkey's Heart, a story told for you by Simon Brooks. What a pleasure to bring that tale to you here on the Appleseed. I've been listening to it not only with you but with one of our assistant producers, Kendra Hanna. Kendra, it's a great tale. 
I really love that story. And I know that I probably shouldn't be rooting for the dragons to <laughs> eat the sapient monkey's heart. But there's a little part of me that wishes that they could have gotten it. <laughs> Especially after hearing that monkey's <laughs> laugh, right? It's just... So annoying. I have a little bit of beef with monkeys, though, I have, to, I have to admit. Oh, you do? I do. I used to live in Spain, and while I did, I visited Gibraltar. And there's all these monkeys that live on, on the rock of Gibraltar. And one of them bit me. Oh, because golly. I didn't have any peanuts for him. Oh, gosh. Well, so that'll, rude. That'll teach you, right? <laughs> <laughs> I got to admit, one of my favorite parts of the story is the setup, as Simon Brooks is talking about the different kinds of dragons that there are, the wingless worms that crawl around on the ground, and the kind of dragons that St. George fought and things like that. And then he talks about the sea dragons, and then he says, and this story is about two sea dragons, and a monkey. <laughs> and a monkey. <laughs> and a monkey, which I love. I love that introduction. And, of course, a wonderful tale to begin our hour together. Kendra, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. There's a lot more coming up on The Appleseed. I'm Sam Payne. You're listening to The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. It's such a pleasure for me to join you on today's episode of The Appleseed. If you're just joining us, a moment ago you heard The Dragon and the Monkey's Heart, a story told with great energy by Simon Brooks, the terrific storyteller. That's from a collection of stories called More Secondhand Tales. A delight to hear that story. We know that the sharing of memories can sometimes be the spark that ignites a story that you can share with the people that you love. And because that's the case, here's a memory of mine, a memory about being published in the school school newsletter. It's today's entry in the Radio Family Journal. The Radio Family Journal with Sam Payne. A tiny little story for you and your family. Right when you need it. On the Appleseed. When I was in fourth grade, I wrote a poem. It started with a little couplet about the town where I lived. It went like this. I live in a little house in Alpine. And as far as I know, that is very fine. That's how the poem began. And it went on to include a couplet about our pets. It went like this. We have a small dog and we have a small cat. And I don't see what is the matter with that. That's how it went. Well, there was a little bit more of the poem, just a little bit. But now that's lost to memory. But somehow those four lines have stuck in my brain, lo, these many years. I wrote the poem because of the school newsletter. Alpine Elementary School had a student newsletter filled with drawings and articles and poetry. came out every month, and it was called The Alpine Yodeler. The Alpine Yodeler was the brainchild of Mr. Thompson, one of the fifth grade teachers at our school. And we looked forward to getting it on our desks. And the dream of getting something published in the Alpine Yodeler fueled the fires of many an aspiring elementary school writer like me. So when the call for submissions came in the form of my teacher, Mr. Bodell, asking if anyone in class wanted to write a poem, my imagination went crazy. I, Sammy Payne, would be a published poet, or could be if my submission was accepted. So I took out a white lined sheet of paper and I wrote the poem. And I handed it in to Mr. Bodell for him to submit to the Alpine Yodeler. And when the Yodeler hit our desks the next month, there it was, my poem. I was published. 
I walked around the playground that day at recess, thinking that everyone was looking at me and whispering to each other, hey, there's that kid whose poem was published in the Alpine Yodeler, which, of course, no one was doing. Well, flash forward to, oh, about six weeks later, and all the kids at church are getting ready for the one Sunday every year in which the children of the congregation deliver the entire service. And the Sunday school teachers putting the service together have assigned each kid to read a little homily or a verse of scripture, and this year they've decided to feature in the service the work of a couple of the kids who have been featured in the school newsletter, the Alpine Yodeler. And in a rehearsal for the service, they're handing out sheets of paper to all the kids, and on the sheets of paper are written the things each kid is going to say in the service. And the Sunday school teacher hands me my sheet, and on my sheet are written the lines of my poem. I live in a little house in Alpine, and as far as I know, that is very fine. We have a small dog, and we have a small cat, and I don't see what is the matter with that, and the rest, and the rest, right? And something happens. I imagine standing at that pulpit and reading those words, not in front of the kids in my school, but in front of all the grown-ups in church, and I imagine them furrowing their brows and thinking about my poem and one grown-up whispering to another, <laughs> the rhyme scheme is pedestrian and the meter doesn't scan, and the other grown-up chuckling and saying, yeah, and get a load of the arrogance of the first couplet. He thinks inordinately highly of the little house in which he lives. And someone else guffaws. Ha! <laughs> that couplet about his pets feel the defensiveness dripping from his pen in that passage. Well, those thoughts, I mean, well, in the end, they made my fourth grade head explode. I simply couldn't read that poem from the pulpit, especially the lines about my house and the lines about my pets. And I only know one way to get out. There in the rehearsal, I raised my hand and I said, um, excuse me. And the Sunday school teacher came over to where I was sitting in the rehearsal. Yes, she said. And I said, there must be some mistake. I didn't write this poem. And my Sunday school teacher blinked at me and she said, oh, no, I'm so sorry. Did we make a mistake? And she rummaged among the papers she was carrying. And among those papers was a copy of the Alpine Yodeler. And she flipped it open, ready to apologize to me again for the mistake she had made. But there was the poem on the submissions page of the Alpine Yodeler over the name Sam Payne in clear black type. And my Sunday school teacher looked at me a little confused. And she said, this isn't your poem? This one with your name beneath it? Well, I had my best poker face on. Nope, I said, not my poem must be the yodeler's mistake, or, or maybe it's a different Sam Payne who wrote that poem. Well, I wasn't fooling anybody. My Sunday school teacher didn't know quite how to respond, but she gave me a hug, and the rehearsal went on without that poem in it. And later on, she called my mom, and my mom talked to me about it, and I maintained the lie until it became ridiculous, the lie that this wasn't my poem that it must be a poem by another Sam Payne at my elementary school or a printing error on the part of the yodeler. And I didn't have to read the poem in the service, not the lines about my house and not the lines about my pets. But here's the irony of it all. Some would say the karma of it all. Since I was in fourth grade, 
I've pushed past whatever shyness, whatever insecurity made me lie to my parents and teachers about having written the Alpine Yodler poem. I can stand on stage or at a pulpit now and deliver a poem or a speech or lines in a play. And the truth is, I've memorized maybe thousands of lines for performances in plays, read and digested a couple of decades worth of poetry, delivered a healthy number of talks and speeches, and you know what? I can hardly bring any of those lines of poetry or dialogue or talks or speeches back to the front of my brain. But even all these years later, as a middle-aged adult, there are a couple of lines of poetry that come to my head unbidden, memorized forever, without me even trying. They go like this. I live in a little house in Alpine, and as far as I know, that is very fine. We have a small dog, and we have a small cat, and I don't see what is the matter with that. I'll never forget those lines. Now that's karma. The Radio Family Journal of Sam Payne. A tiny little story for you and your family. Right when you need it, on the Appleseed. Thanks for joining me for that entry in the Radio Family Journal. Stories from Ed Stivender and Willie Claflin coming up. But first, how about a conversation with a friend? Stories come into our lives in so many different ways, from families passing them along, telling to telling, from the pages of great books, from radio and podcasts, through songs, the great things we see on screen, even making and sharing great food brings a lot of story into the lives of a family. And exploring all of the ways that great stories get into our hearts and minds is part of what we love here on the Appleseed. I'm thrilled to be in the studio with Brenna Haddock. Brenna, thanks for joining us again. Thanks for having me again. I'm glad to be here. And your philosophy, I, I, and I love this so much, right? I, I, you, you had an experience that you talk about where after trying lots and lots of diets and whatnot, you just gave up on dieting and, and discovered a much better relationship to food and life that's like all food all the time, joy in eating, joy in life. And I just can't help but think, I'm in for that. I'm I, raise count me as one interested party in that philosophy. Absolutely. Right? I did kind of no pun intended quit dieting cold turkey and <laughs> <laughs> never looked back. <laughs> and it's been fabulous. Yeah, and and you do a lot of coaching too for people who are looking to improve their relationship not only with food but with life too, right? Yes, absolutely. I have a coaching program that people can go through. Um they can do just an online version or with some one-on-one sessions with me. And um, anyway, that's what I do and help people to also create this fabulous relationship with food that will allow them to enjoy and also enjoy their lives more. Any phrase that begins with fabulous relationship with food, I'm all about. Dietproof.teachable.com. Again, dietproof.teachable.com is where you can find Brenna's coaching program. And uh, Brenna, we're here to talk about food and family. Are you in? I am totally in today. <laughs> we have had conversations about wonderful cookies. Oh, man. Always, always makes my mouth water to have you in the studio. And uh, we want to talk about, this is one of my very, very favorite things on the planet, and that is peach pie. Peach pie. Talk to me about peach pie. There's a peach pie in your family. 
Well, yes, my grandmother, my dad's mom, was famous not only for a fresh peach pie, but her fresh strawberry pie. But we'll leave the strawberry pie for another day. We can't. We can't take too much. <laughs> we can't take too much. But um, <laughs> yes, she was very famous around all of her region in Washington State for her fresh peach pie. And of course, now she had a, she had kids, and they had kids, and you're in that 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 second generation. You're all making that same peach pie, right? Yes, and actually. I am not, as much as it might sound like I am, I am actually not the amazing cook in our family. It is actually my younger sister who is, and she took this peach pie recipe, and she perfected it. (laughs) She made it foolproof. If you know anything about fresh peach pie, sometimes it doesn't like to set up for you. And she went into the science and the nitty gritty, and she figured out how to make it work every single time. (laughs) (laughs) Was your grandma around to see that, or has she passed on? She passed away about a year and a half ago. Mm. And um, I do believe that my sister was able to share that with her before she passed oh, on. I would what a have blessing. To, I would have to double check that with her, but I do believe <laughs> that she did do that. Oh, that's fantastic. You know, when you make a peach pie like that, it it it's it's it opens the door not only to a delicious experience with a great peach pie, but uh, to a lot of memories about the person who gave you the peach pie in the first place. And in, in this instance, your grandma, when you take a bite of of that peach pie, whether, again, and now we're talking about peach pies that you're making, that your siblings are making, right? Are there memories of grandma that come along with that bite of pie? Absolutely. It transports me to her old house with the forest green carpet. <laughs> and there was a huge picture window. They lived up on a bluff above the Columbia River hmm. in eastern Washington. Yeah. And uh, they just looked out over their farmland and then the river. And I just, I can just, I just enter that house. Yeah. Absolutely. There was always ice cream in the freezer. It was just, (laughs) just absolutely grandma's house in every sense. And yes, this pie absolutely transports me. What was your grandma like? I mean, I, I, I love hearing about the house and, and what a beautiful place that is, that part of the country and the Columbia River, my word, what a beautiful thing to be able to look out on as you look out the windows of, of, of your grandmother's home. What were some of the things that you looked forward to as you went to grandma's house? My grandmother loved music. She had an organ that she would let us play and she had a gong. She would let <laughs> bang on. I can't even imagine what that was like for the adults in, in the house. She loved, she loved, loved music. She loved, um, she loved her food. She always made roasts and pies and ice. She, there was always ice cream, always, always ice cream. Um, let's see. She was an amazingly strong woman. They went up to Washington state and homesteaded after world war two. They lived in a little tiny, just a little tiny house for many, many years before they built that bigger house that I talked about with the picture window. Yeah. Uh, she had polio. Wow. And um, even after contracting polio, had eight children. Yeah. And she's just incredible. Such a wonderful, such an amazing generation to look at, you know. Absolutely. And, and, and such a, such a, a a lesson, you know, that's what great family stories do for us is you imagine them homesteading after World War II and starting out with not much, you know, and 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 progressing from there and, and seeing uh, their, the, the beautiful home that you remember and and, uh, and and rising up from polio and having a large family and 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 some of those things it, as I look at sort of some of the analogs for those things in my family, it makes me think that 
over time we can overcome a lot right over time we can we can take a situation that may not be perfect and we can build something great you know uh, th- those are great lessons to learn and and they all come flooding into your heart as you take a a bite of delicious peach pie. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> oh, gosh. Brenna Haddock, thank you so much for sharing with us some of the memories, some of the details about your grandmother's life and some of those things that come into your heart and mind when you take a delicious bite of peach pie. Can we put a recipe online? We absolutely will share the recipe and it shouldn't, it shouldn't give you any problem. My sister has made sure of that. (laughs) (laughs) This is a collaborative recipe between Brenna's sister and her grandmother. What a lovely thing. And of course, again, dietproof.teachable.com is where you want to go to find more of Brenna's work, helping people have a great relationship with great food and great life. Brenna, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Great stories come into our lives in so many ways. What a pleasure to chat about peach pie, one of my favorites, with Brenna Haddock. Lots more coming up on The Appleseed. Stick around for a story called Jack and the Magic Boat from Ed Stivender. I'm Sam Payne. You're listening to The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. What a pleasure to have you with me today on The Appleseed. Up next, a story from Ed Stivender, a story called Jack and the Magic Boat. When Jack and his brothers discover that a princess has been captured and needs to be saved, and when Jack's brothers both fail the evil wizard's tests and are forced to come home without the princess, it's up to Jack. Here's the story from Ed Stivender on The Appleseed. One morning, Jack and his brother Will and his brother Tom were sitting around the breakfast table, and Jack said, pass me the milk, please. They passed the milk to Jack. He looked on the side of the milk carton. There was a picture of a young girl with a crown on her head. Above the picture, it said, missing princess. Below the picture, it said, princess has been kidnapped by an evil wizard, cast under a spell. $1,000 reward for anyone who can find the princess and break the spell. Then there was a toll-free 1-800 number under that. And Will, he was the oldest brother, said, Mama, I'd like to go out and de-witch that princess. Can you pack me a lunch? So they packed for him a nice roast chicken, chocolate cake, quart of milk, put it in a satchel, sent him on his way. He got about halfway to the wizard's house when he figured he'd sit down and have his lunch. He was just about to start eating when an old woman with a staff in her hand came down the road and said to Will, Can you share some of your meal, Sonny? Will looked up at the old woman and said, no way, old lady. Only have enough for myself. You're going to have to find your meal somewhere else today. Get on out of here. The old woman continued on her way. Will finished what he could, but he wasted a lot of it. Just threw it into the woods, headed on toward the wizard's house. He got to the wizard's house, walked up to the front door, knocked on it. No answer. All of a sudden, he heard behind him, Yes, young man, what can I do for you this morning? Well, said Will to the evil wizard standing in the yard. I'm here to de-witch the princess. Well, if you want to de-witch the princess, you're going to have to pass four tests. And this is the first one. The wizard brought out a hackle. Hackle is a board about a foot square with nails sticking up. People used to beat flax to make linen on hackles. Put the hackle on the ground, stood on a stump. The wizard jumped into the air, came down head first on the nails, popped off without a scratch on him. Your turn. Will got up on that stump, looked down at them nails, closed his eyes, leaned forward. Oh, my head, my head, my head. He ran home with the blood streaming down his face. He got home, his mama fixed up his head with vinegar and brown paper, and he was in bed for three weeks. (laughs) 
She got that idea from a nursery rhyme she read at her library. <laughs> Next morning, it was Tom's turn. Tom's mama packed for him a nice roast chicken, nice chocolate cake, quart of milk, put it in a satchel, sent him on his way. Tom got about halfway to the wizard's house, figured he'd sit down and have his lunch. Just about to start eating, old woman, staff in her hand, comes down the road and says to Tom, can you share some of your meal, sonny? Tom looked up at the old woman and said, no way, old lady, only have enough for myself. You're gonna have to find your meal somewhere else today. Get on out of here. The old woman continued on her way. Tom finished what he could, wasted a lot of it, threw it into the woods, headed on toward the wizard's house, got to the wizard's front door, knocked on it. No answer. All of a sudden he heard behind him, yes, young man, what can I do for you this morning? Well, sir, said Tom, I'm here to uh, dewitch the princess. Well, if you want to dewitch the princess, you're going to have to pass four tests. And this is the first one. Brought out that hackle, the board with them nails sticking up, put the hackle on the ground, stood on a stump. Wizard jumped into the air, came down, hit it first on the hackle, popped off without a scratch on it. Your turn. Tom got up on the stump, looked down at the hackle, closed his eyes, leaned forward. Oh, my head, my head. He ran home with the blood streaming down his face. His mama fixed him up with vinegar and brown paper. He was in bed for three weeks. Next day was Jack's turn. Jack wasn't really the favorite of the family. He was a little bit on the foolish side, and he was always telling stories and all. So all he got for lunch, since they were running out of chicken and chocolate cake and milk, was two dry pieces of bread, quart of well water, put in a satchel, sent him on his way. He got about halfway to the wizard's house when he figured he'd sit down and have his lunch, just about to start eating. And all of a sudden, an old woman with a staff in her hand came down the road and said to Jack, can you share some of your meal, sonny? Jack looked up at the old woman and what do you think Jack said? Sure, ma'am, have a seat. Old woman sat down, Jack gave her one of the dry pieces of bread and about half of the well water. And when they were finished their lunch, the old woman said to Jack, I can see you're an upstanding young man, Jack. I got a present for you. Reached into her pocket, pulled out a piece of bark, bark from a tree. Handed that piece of bark to Jack and said, that's a piece of magic bark. All you gotta, that's a piece of magic bark. All you gotta do is hold it up and say, sail, ship, sail. Piece of magic bark will take you wherever you're going. Thank you, ma'am, said Jack. Headed on down the road with that piece of magic bark. But before he got to the wizard's house, he figured he'd try it out, see if it really worked. Held it up and said, sail, ship, sail. All of a sudden, that piece of bark began to expand and expand and expand until there, floating in the air in front of Jack, was a 35-foot sailing sloop with a mast reaching high and sails a-flapping. There was an anchor chain came out of it with an anchor hooked onto a root. Jack got into the magic boat, pulled in the anchor chain, said, sail, ship, sail. The boat took off up and up and up and up. And pretty soon he could see all over the countryside. He saw his mama's house over on one side, saw that wizard's house over on the other side, but he figured he'd take a ride around. And as he was riding, he heard a sound coming from down below, something like this. He looked over the side of the boat, and there down below was a fella running so fast, butting his head into trees so hard that all the leaves would shake off. Jack out down to the fella. Hey, fella, what's your name? My name is Hardy Hardhead. What's yours? My name is Jack. You want to come on my boat? I'd love to, said Hardy. Hardy, Hardy, get on the boat with Jack, and they took it up and up and up and up. After a while, they heard another sound. Went like this. <laughs> Sounds like some mud mines going on down there, said Jack. <laughs> Looked over the side of the boat, and there down below was a fella running through a pasture, stopping at ponds and drinking the ponds dry in one go. Jack yelled down to the fella, hey, fella, what's your name? 
My name is Drinkwell. What's yours? My name is Jack. You want to come on my boat? I'd love to. So Drinkwell got on the boat and they took it up and up and up. After a while, they heard another sound. Went like this. Jack looked over the side of the boat and there down below was a fella running through a pasture, chasing sheep, catching the sheep, eating them whole. Jack yelled down to the fella. Hey, fella, what's your name? My name is Eatwell. What's yours? My name is Jack. Want to come on my boat? I'd love to. Eatwell got on the boat and they took it up and up and up. After a while, everything got real quiet. The people were wondering where the heroic women were. <laughs> Jack looked over the side of the boat and there down below were three young women. One of them was standing there like this, with her hands behind her ears. One of them was standing there like this, with her hands over her eyes. One of them was standing there like this, with her hands around her nose. Jack said to the first young woman, young woman, what do you hear? I hear a monarch butterfly caterpillar chewing on a milkweed leaf 1,000 miles away. That's pretty good, young woman. What's your name? My name is Herewell. What's yours? My name is Jack. You want to come on my boat? I'd love to. So here we'll get on the boat. Young woman stand there with her hands above her eyes. Jack said to her, hey, young woman, what, what do you see? I see a raven coming down to eat a monarch butterfly caterpillar <laughs> chewing on a milkweed leaf 1,000 miles away. That's pretty good, young woman. What's your name? My name is Sewell. What's yours? My name is Jack. You want to come on my boat? I'd love to. Sewell get on the boat. Young woman stand there like this. Jack said to her, hey, young woman, what do you smell? I smell raven's vomit 1,000 miles away. <laughs> Them monarch butterfly caterpillars are poisonous, you know, so I heard. <laughs> What's your name? My name is Smellwell. What's yours? My name is Jack. You want to come on my boat? I'd love to. Smellwell, get on the boat. They were about to take the boat up when all of a sudden they heard twang zzzz. They looked over and there was a fella with a bow. He had just shot an arrow. Jack said to him, hey fella, what'd you just do? Well, I reckon I just put a raven out of his misery 1,000 miles away. <laughs> Pretty good, fella. What's your name? My name is Shootwell. What's yours? My name is Jack. You want to come on my boat? I'd love to, so Shootwell get on the boat. They're about to take the boat up when they heard, Neow. All Jack could see was a gray blur. He realized it was a young woman running so fast you could hardly even see her. He called out, young woman, hold on. What's your name? My name is Judy. But in 2004, when I go to the Olympics, they're gonna call me Runwell. What's yours? <laughs> my name's Jack, you wanna come on my boat? I'd love to, said Runwell. Got on the boat and they took it up and up and up and up and up and up. After a while, Jack figures about time to go see that wizard. So he called out, hard below, which is only a command you can give if your sailboat is floating in the air. <laughs> sailboat came down and down and down, settled in the air in front of the wizard's house. Jack jumped out of the boat, walked over to the front door, knocked on it. No answer. All of a sudden, he heard behind him, Yes, young man, what can I do for you this morning? Well, sir, said Jack, I'm here to uh, dewitch the princess with my friends. Oh, yeah. If you want to dewitch the princess, you're going to have to pass four tests. This is the first one. Brought out the hackle, the board with them nails, put the hackle on the ground, stood on a stump, jumped into the air, came down head first on the nails, popped off without a scratch on him. Your turn. <coughs> well, sir, said Jack, I'd like one of my friends to try that. Oh, yeah. Which one of your friends? Oh, my friend... Hardy Hardhead. Hardy Hardhead, get out of the boat, walked over to the stump, stood on the stump, jumped in the air, 
flipped around three times, came down so hard on that hackle, he broke it into a thousand pieces. Hey, Jack, can I borrow your comb? Why, sure, Harley. <laughs> All right! This is mine for the wizard. I want to I repeat this. All right! That's the wizard, okay? Don't get it confused with any other character. All right! You pass one of the four tests, but there's still three more to go. And if you fail any of these tests, I get to slit your throats from ear to ear and suck out your brains. Is it agreed? Yes, sir, said Jack. Did I tell you that it was an evil wizard? <laughs> yes, sir, said the gang in the boat. All right, you got anybody that likes to drink? Well, said Jack, none of my friends drink alcohol, but my friend Drinkwell loves water. Drinkwell get out of the boat. The wizard pointed to a creek at Drinkwell's feet and said, all right, Drinkwell, that'll be your creek there. This'll be my creek here. I'll race you to see who can drink their creek dry first. If you win, you pass two of the four tests. But if I win, I get to slit your throats from ear to ear and suck out your brains. On the count of three. One, two, two and a half. Two and three quarters. Two and seven eighths. Two and 15 sixteenths. Two and 31 30 seconds. Two and 63 60 fourths. Two and 127 120 eighths. Two and 255 256 Later on, when Jack took his SATs, <laughs> he remembered this moment and got a great math score. Two and 511 512 Three! And the wizard began to drink, but drink well. Drank up his whole creek and was beginning to drink from the headwaters of the wizard. All right! So you passed two of the four tests, but there's still two more to go. You got anybody that likes to eat? Well, said Jack, my friend, eat well, loves to eat. Eat well, get out of the boat. The wizard disappeared behind his house, dragged out by the horns two prize-winning cows, handed one of them cows to eat well, held the other himself and said, here's the deal, eat well. I'll race you to see who can finish their cow first. If you win, you pass three of the four tests. But if I win, I get to slit your throats from here to here and suck out your brains. On the count of three. One, two, 2 2.5, 2.6, 2.7, 2.8, 2.9, 2.99, 2.99999993. And the whiz began to eat, but before he was half finished, eat well, finished his and said, you got anything for dessert, sir? All right. <laughs> so you passed three of the four tests, but there's still one more to go. You got anybody that likes to run? Well, said Jack, all my friends jog, but my friend Runwell really loves to run. Runwell, get out of the boat. The wizard took an egg, broke the egg, let the yolk fall on the ground, handed half the eggshell to Runwell, held the other half himself, and said, here's the deal, Runwell. I'll race you from here to the Pacific Ocean and back. 3,000 miles up, 3,000 miles back. You take your eggshell, fill it with salt water to prove you've been there. If you win, we'll dewitch the princess. But if I win... I get to slit your throats from ear to ear and suck out your brains. On the count of three. Three! <laughs> and the wizard was off like a shot. What a cheater. Runwell caught up to him, passed him, got to the Pacific Ocean, filled her eggshell with salt water, was on her way back when the wizard met her coming halfway. The wizard knew he was going to have to pull another dirty trick. Reached into his pocket, pulled out a bottle of chloroform, makes you go to sleep. Out of his other pocket, he pulled a handkerchief. He put the chloroform on the handkerchief, say no to drugs, and as Runwell ran past, <laughs> covered her mouth and nose with that chloroformed handkerchief. She fell asleep right on her feet. She lay down on the ground. The wizard sped on to the Pacific Ocean, knowing that Runwell would never wake up. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, Jack and the gang were getting a little worried. 
Jack says, smell well? What do you smell? I smell chloroform, 1,500 miles away. Hear well? What do you hear? Oh, I hear bad news, Jack. Sounds like snoring, 1,500 miles away. See well? What do you see? Uh-oh, bad news, Jack. Run well. Judy is sleeping on the ground. Got a handkerchief covering her mouth and nose. Probably has chloroform on the handkerchief. She's never going to wake up. Well, gang, I guess we're goners. <coughs> Not necessarily, says Shootwell as he stepped out of the boat. Took an arrow from his quiver. Notched it up. Pulled it back. The arrow traveled 1,500 miles. Hit the handkerchief off the mouth and nose of Runwell. She got fresh air. Looked around, saw that her eggshell was empty. Had to go back to the Pacific Ocean to refill it. Meanwhile, here comes that wizard. He's coming on strong. He's about 300 yards from the finish line. There's Runwell on the horizon. Pretty soon, they're neck and neck, nose and nose. With her final ounce of energy, Runwell bursts over the finish line and wins the race. Ah! Said the wizard. This is the wizard, right? <laughs> ah! I hate it when the good guys win. <sighs> good guys? Oh, uh, good women, good girls, good humankind, whatever it is. Come on around back. I'll show you where the princess is. They went around back, and there was a shed back there. The wizard opened the shed door. Little girl staring into space with a crown on her head. C-A-T spells rat. R-A-T spells bat. Hey, that's a spell, all right, said Jack. That is a bad spell. <laughs> That is a bad spell. <laughs> and the wizard said, Abracadabra, the spell is lifted. Go on back to your classroom for the gifted. And the princess came to her senses, walked out of the Jack and the gang asked her if she wanted to ride on the boat. She said she did. They took her on the boat and they took her down to the castle where she lived with her mom and dad. King and queen ran out of the castle, hugged the princess gave Jack and the gang $1,000, and they spent the rest of that day just wandering over the countryside, trying to figure out how they could invest that $1,000 to ensure that they would all live happily ever after. <laughs> Recorded live at the National Storytelling Festival in Jonesboro, Tennessee. A Jack tale told for you by Ed Stivender, the great Philadelphia storyteller. Jack and the Magic Boat, the name of that story. And our last story today comes from Maynard Moose, the puppet storytelling companion of the great storyteller and musician Willie Claflin. And in this tale, the two nicest girls in the world, Snow White and Rose Red, find themselves under a curse that makes them rude when they save a very grumpy dwarf from death by cutting off his beard. Well, how will the two very good sisters navigate their lives with such a curse, the curse of grumpiness? Well, will they figure out a way to break it, you're going to find out in So What and Drop Dead, a story based upon and very freely adapted from an old fairy tale. And it's uh, Maynard Moose telling it. Happy to bring it to you here on The Appleseed. 
like so a little bedtime story like um my most favorite when I love a little moosey my most favorite if bedtime story was the story of so what and drop dead <laughs> I will tell you that one once upon a time there were two little girls named Snow White and Rose Red and they lived with their mommy in a little cottage in the forest and they were very goodly, cheerful girls, and they smile and smile, and they were always polite, and they always smile and smile and smile. They smile so much it make their faces hurt. <laughs> and they were so good it gave them bad headaches. <laughs> they suffered from too much goodness. <laughs> and every morning the yellow bird of cheerfulness would come to their window, flap, 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 flap. And he would say, Snow White, Rose Red, time to get up out of bed. They say, thank you, yellow bird of cheerfulness. Tell all the forest aminals to have a nice day. Well, one day, Snow White and Rose Red were out walking in the forest when they see a little naftify, pointify, dwarfy, bearded man. He got his beard snaggled up in a brangle bush. He was extremely angrified. He was saying, you stupid bush, I hate you, I hate you, I hate you. Well, the girls start to giggle and the dwarfy man see them. What are you looking at, obnoxious girls? You despicable vermins. Just make the girls giggle even more. They have never heard bad language before. <laughs> what are you looking at? Help me, you worm-brained, dog-breath girls. Well, the girls, they do not know what to do, but for to save him, to get him out of the brangle bush, they cut off the end of his beard. But is he grateful? No. He's four times more angrified than before. Look what you did to my beard, you despicable worm-breath, dog-brained, obnoxious vermin girls. You do that again, I put a curse on you. Well, the girls go home. They say, Mommy, Mommy, what does obnoxious, despicable, worm-breath, dog-brain mean? <laughs> the mommy say, Girls, I do not know where you have heard bad language like that. But we do not speak like that in my house. Okay, say Snow White, but that night when they are in bed, Snow White say, Hey, Rose Red, are you still awake? Yes, I am, say Rose Red. Hey, say Snow White, let us go find the little dwarfy man tomorrow and learn more bad words. <laughs> so off they go into the forest in search of bad words and bad language, and they had not gone far before they find the little dwarfy man again. This time his beard is all snaggled up in a fishing line, and a great big fish is going to drag him into the pond and drownify him. <laughs> Help me, help me, despicable, obnoxious, dog-breath girls! <laughs> well, they do not know what to do, and again, for to save his life, they have to cut off the end of his beard. But is he grateful? No. He's four times more angrified than before. Look what you have done, you obnoxious, despicable, worm-breath, dog-brain girls! Just for ruining my beard, I put a curse upon you. I change your names from Snow White and Rose Red into So What and Drop Dead. And that is all you will ever be able to say again. Well, they do not know what to do. They go home, and there is their mommy waiting at the doorway. Hello, girls. So nice to see your shining faces. I have fixed your favorite supper, rainbow trout and wild blumberry muffins. So what? Say, so what? Thou drop dead, say drop dead. <laughs> oh, girls, say to mommy. Where did you learn language like that? I do not let girls speak like that in my house. So what? Say so what? <laughs> Thou drop dead, say drop dead. Girl, say to mommy, if you say those things again, I will be extremely angrified. 
Cecil what? Cecil what? Thou drop dead, say drop dead. Oh, now you shut up, say to mommy. Well, thing will not very cheerful in that house no more. The yellow bird of cheerfulness come to the window, flap, 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 flap. All he can hear is, so what, drop dead, shut up. All oh, the little furry far-eft animals, they stay away from that house, they do. Well, one winter evening, so what and drop dead and the mommy, they were sitting around the fireplace insultifying each other. Winter, will they knock upon the door? Girl, say to mommy, go see if at the door it is a cold winter night and maybe some poor stranger is about to freeze to death. So what? Say so what? <laughs> yeah, drop dead, say drop dead. Oh, shut up, say to mommy. Her go answer the door herself and dare in the doorway. <gasps> dare in the doorway of the biggest. The scariest, most scariest looking, dreadfulest looking, great big grovelly bear. Oh, please, please, say the grovelly bear. I am about froze to death. Please let me come warm my paws by your fire. Certainly, Mr. Bear, say to mommy, you come warm your paws by the fire. So the bear, he come warm his paws until pretty soon he knife and toastly warm. Oh, thank you, thank you, say the bear. Out there I was so cold, I probably would have froze to death. So what, say so what? Yeah, drop dead, they drop dead. And do you know what happened? The bear dropped dead. Right there on the living room rug. Great, swell, say to mommy, now look what you have done. You and your bad language, now we got a dead bear in the living room. But no sooner did the bear drop dead than poof, the bear disappear, and the room is filled with a goldly glow, and there stand a kingly king with a crown. Oh, thank you, thank you, rude girls, say the king. The little dwarfly man put a spell upon me and turned me into a bear, and I had to stay in my bear shape until I could find the two most rudely girls in the whole world. <laughs> and now that you have insultified me, I can be a king again, you buffed the spell. Thank you, and I can marry your mommy. Oh, boy, oh, boy, say the mommy. Now I can live happily and be queen and live happily forever after. So what? Say, so what? <laughs> Thou drop dead, they drop dead. Well, they are the king and queen. They ain't gonna put up with that kind of behavior, no way. They issue a royal proclamation. No more saying so what and drop dead in the house. Well, what are the girls supposed to do? They are stuck with the dwarfly curse. So they decide to go and run away from home. And in the springtime, when the weather get warm, they sneak off into the forest and they had not gone far before guess who they spy but the little pointify, nastified, dwarfy, bearded man. <laughs> And this time, a great big crow is going to carry him off into the sky. Flap, 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 flap. The dwarfly man see them. Help me, obnoxious dog-breathed frog brain girl. Save me. I don't want to die. So what? Say so what? <laughs> yeah, drop dead. Say drop dead. <laughs> no, 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 say the dwarfy man. I take back the curse. You can have your real names back, Snow White and Rose Red, and you can have any wish you want besides. So they save his life, you know. They hanged onto his foot so he too heavy for the poor crow to carry away. <laughs> and then he say, okay, Snow White and Rose Red, you can have your name back and anything you like. Okay, say Snow White, I gonna be Snow White, I gonna be a princess, I gonna go live with a king and queen, live in a tall, tall tower and have lots of jewels and gowns and wigs. <laughs> Not me, say Rose Red, I gonna stay drop dead. <laughs> I like this name, I like to be drop dead. And I'm going to marry you, you de dwarfy man. 
You obnoxious frog brain dog breath dwarfy, I'm gonna marry you and learn more bad words. <laughs> Though they were married the very next day in a despicable dwarfy ceremony. Do you drop dead? Take this obnoxious vermin despicable worm breath dog brain dwarfy person to be your to be your husband through worser and worser and worser until eventually you both drop dead? <laughs> I do, they drop dead and they were married and they live happily for never after. But, but the yellow bird of cheerfulness does not come to their window. No way. No, every morning instead, the buzzard of bad language come to their window. And he teach them a new bad word every day. And that is the end of So What and Drop Dead. Thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs> Maynard Moose, the storytelling companion of Willie Claflin. What a pleasure to have been with you today. Our producer is Jeff Simpson. And again, I can't wait to be with you again. Thanks for joining us for an hour of stories, music, and conversation made for you and your family and brought to you by The Appleseed. The show is a production of BYU Radio. We'll see you next time.